You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. A thousand years ago, people walked the Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James. An array of pilgrimage routes that came from all over Europe and through northern Spain, finishing in the far northwestern Spanish town of Santiago de Compostela, supposedly the burial site of St. James the Apostle. Pilgrims went by foot with the clothes on their backs, or they traveled on horseback in an entourage of servants. Poor and rich medieval pilgrims were on a quest for spiritual rewards and a chance to pray before a great relic. Today, people are still making the pilgrimage. The route isn't a perfect recreation of the medieval way of St. James, but it's close. Pilgrims go by foot with the packs on their backs. Others go by bike. These pilgrims are also on a quest. Some for a spiritual experience, others for insight into medieval history, others for the sense of accomplishment that comes after a long walk. We're doing what people have done, but we're doing it for our own purposes. This year, Richard Jug took a group of his medieval history students to walk the second half of the pilgrimage route that begins on the French side of the Pyrenees Mountains. The group walked 200 miles in two weeks for their own purposes, and they had a lot of company. Today, in a typical year, 70 to 80,000 people will travel this route. But in a year like this year, which is a jubilee year, and a jubilee year is when the Feast of the Saint falls on a Sunday, in a jubilee year, there will be 150 thousand people traveling and it was very crowded this year because of that especially in Santiago there were hordes of people in the street it was like a medieval carnival because of the the extra effort that's made for the jubilee year and we saw signs all over Spain it's on coke cans Chacabeo 2010 in other words the jubilee year so it's a special year for the for the Camino the modern phenomenon You've been doing this for years yourself. Yes. When was, what was your first Camino? The first, I, I walked a route with a, an old grad school friend, Andrew Taylor. We walked in France for a month in 1999. You walked for a whole month? For a whole month, that, that time, for a month, which was one of the, the feeder routes. And then I, I thought for, for a number of years, I thought, can this be a course? Is this too individual? Is this, in some ways, too countercultural? Because you're, you're stepping aside from normal routines. Is it possible to do it as a course for credit? At first, it didn't make sense. But eventually, I settled on that. And in 2007, went with a, a group of Fordham students for those last two weeks, the last 300-plus kilometers. And then again in 2008, and then again this year in 2010. And intend to, to do the same next year with a different group. I want to ask you about the course in a mm -hmm. second, but, but you said it's too individual. It can be, because... Because everybody is walking for their own motives. They are going to discover things for themselves. They're going to have their own interaction with, with other people along the way. And it's always new people. It's a shifting crowd of, of, of those who live in these towns and villages, plus the other peregrinos and peregrinas who are, who are walking, the other pilgrims. So my first hesitation seven or eight years ago was, can this translate into something as structured as a course? where there are grades and where there are assignments. And that's, that's been a challenge, but I think the, certainly the classes have risen to that challenge and let the, the Camino do its own thing. And each of them has, has found something for themselves and found something in a group because there's a, a community of the road. Pilgrim communitas? Communitas, sure. A technical Latin term meaning the idea, and it was uh, Victor and Mary Turner really publicized this, almost a generation ago, was, was the idea that in pilgrimage, you cross a threshold, you leave your daily life, and you do something with others or by yourself 
in an alternate world, a world that follows different rules, and you're in this, this suspended different world for the time you're on pilgrimage until you arrive. And then after that, there's the, the need to reintegrate, to come back to your world. So there's three stages. Transition, the time in the community of the road, the communitas, and then reintegration. So they, uh, the Turners, publicize this word or they, they analyze this, this idea of community. But it's something that almost anybody who does the Camino experiences because you are sharing something that is not part of daily life. The idea of walking 15 miles a day and staying in hostels and sharing meals. This is not what we do from day to day. So that transition from our daily life in an entirely new environment and the shared experience is one that creates communitas, community. Give me a sense of the, the, the rhythm you get into. We get up most days and are out the door walking by 7 a.m. When it's projected to be very, very hot or it's going to be a longer day, we'll be a couple of times this year, for instance, we left at between 5.30 and 6 in the morning out walking for an hour in the dark. That's the first step. So everybody stumbles out of bed, or you hear little alarm clocks go off, or, or other pilgrims are packing their bags. Everybody sort of groggily gets going first thing in the morning. We'll walk for a couple of hours, and then find a place. There'll be a bar open to have coffee and, and a croissant, or tostadas, that's toast. Then continue walking, typically on a day that, that's anywhere from 12 to 18 miles. We'll be walking until noon, or... If it's a longish day and everybody is stopping along the way, they might finish at 2, 3, 4 in the afternoon. Usually we'll settle into that new town where we've arrived, put our bags down, wash up, have a big meal. There's a, The big meal in Spain is typically at 2 or 3 in the afternoon, so have a big meal. Our group would then meet again later in the afternoon at 5 or 6. One member of the class will present on that town where we are, the historic monuments, the place it played in the Camino, the events, the historic events and then hang out for the evening and get an early bedtime, somewhere between 9 and 11, because you have to be ready for the very next day. Richard Jug on walking along the medieval pilgrimage route known as the Camino de Santiago. This year marked the third time Jug has led a group of students on the pilgrimage, and each year the students have blogged about their trip from the internet cafes along the way. In the blog of the group that accompanied Jug along the Camino in 2008, there's a post by two students about the long approach they made to a medieval jousting town. They wrote, We set out for the second day with sore legs and under gray skies. We could see the city from many kilometers away and arduously walked the last hour and a half trying not to constantly stare at our destination in the way that a student attempts to ignore the classroom clock that moves like molasses in the last five minutes of the period. I've talked about the, the Camino to many, many classes at Fordham. And one, once uh, a student asked, the question went, is it difficult? And so I started to talk about the physical aspect of carrying a pack and, and dealing with rain or blisters, that sort of thing. And then the student explained that, no, that wasn't the issue. The question is, is it boring? Is it tedious to walk that? And and that's, it just wasn't imaginable. I, I couldn't, didn't realize that that was a question at all uh, until it was explained to me because walking is not tedious in that way. Every corner is a new, is a new vista. You're, you're at a pace that's very natural. The, the minutia that we miss all too readily in a car or on a bicycle is right there in front of us. We're passing through little villages, animals and the people. 
we're watching the road as we go. So there's, there's something about that which is not tedious in, in a sense. However, we're worried about distance because carrying a pack and worrying about your feet. So what pilgrims, modern pilgrims do along the way is they will sing and they will talk. You know, some will listen to their iPods or uh, think about the distance or imagine the next thing. But, but that's each, each person has their own way of, of interacting with their surroundings and with their, their immediate goals. And you encourage people not to um, feel like they have to walk in a group, in any particular group. Oh, absolutely, group. right. Every, everybody, and this, you'll hear it in, in multiple languages. It, it's really a, a truism of the, of the Camino that everybody has to walk up with their own rhythm and at their own pace. That's just a necessity f for comfort at, at the very least, but then also for your own thoughts and for your own, your own needs. Sure, you'll walk with, with friends or with people you've just met for a while, but there's always, everybody has to, to do things at their own pace that which they are comfortable with and that which allows them to stop and smell the roses if they want or to get to where they want to go, whatever it is, it's up to them. You mentioned that some people are listening to an, to an iPod. And when I was prepping for this, I was thinking about the way I walk around New York. And even though there's so much to look at, I am really guilty of just putting in my earbuds and I just zone out. And a lot of times I'm not looking even though there's so much to look at and on a walk like this when there's comparatively you're not in a city there's less hustle and bustle you you know you could tune out and listen to an mm -hmm. ipod but you could also be fascinated by you know the way a hill crests or sure. you know a or field of cherries or field of flowers or the animals or the people around you i think what you what what you're getting a chance what you're getting at is is a a common kind of issue and that's a question of what's what's authentic what what really is the experience that people should be getting out of something like this and it's a very common debate you know are bicycles an authentic way of, of doing a pilgrimage to I mean to foot pilgrims they don't look like it is somebody who has sent their pack ahead doing it authentically and it's the kind of who common, has sent their pack well you can in some places you can send your pack ahead you know there'll be a service from town to town because there are, th are 75,000 people doing this so there's got to be something for everybody, and and that kind of debate about authenticity, I think it, it's a kind of, it's a kind of questing. It's asking why am I doing this? Why is anybody doing this? What makes it legitimate? Is there are there rules? And so the question you asked about, you know, is it okay to walk with an iPod, or or is that the experience? Sure, lots of people ask that, and personally, I I wouldn't because I'd want to see things and hear things, but for others. It's important for them that they're they're in a, a meditative world of their own, and that's that's fine too. That works well. So I wouldn't I wouldn't get involved in the authenticity debates, but it's part of the road. To ask that kind of question is very much part of the the ongoing discussions along the Camino by the the various pilgrims. So, what is your authentic pilgrimage? Oh, uh, for I mean, me, it's for anybody you. who wants to, anybody who's interested in being out in the countryside and trying new things all those are authentic it's if they make the effort and they get something out of it then they've had their pilgrimage their camino do you have an ethic about your own walk like your specific you know what will make this authentic to yeah. you dr richard right. duke what what matters what matters for me there are there are a few days that i look forward to for particular reasons but a lot of what i'm doing is preparing for the others so that they can so that they will have the material to, to concentrate on and to focus on and to think about as they're doing the Camino, as they're walking. So I'm thinking, as I'm going, I'm thinking about 
where we're staying and how we're going to get there and is everybody okay and is what do they need? I mean, that's a, that's a large part, which which is fulfilling, very fulfilling in its in in its own way. And to see see everybody learning and and finding things out and well, they do they're great ambassadors for Fordham and they're great ambassadors for America and all these kinds of things. That's what I look for and that's what I'm enjoying as I go. When you walked the Camino for mm-hmm. the first time with your grad school buddy Andrew Taylor, yeah. Andrew Taylor, yes, that's right. Who's now at uh, University of Ottawa? When when you two walked it for the first time, it was new to you. How how were you uh, rallying buddies? Huh? Oh, that's, no, that's a good it's a good question. The real lesson from the first couple of times that Andrew and I walked was, I'm we're historians, we're medievalists, and so we were very interested in the historical aspects and the the what the actual physical experience can tell us about the medieval texts and the medieval experience. Is there a common ground? So we're thinking of it as historians. And we even did some some checking of side routes to see if it made sense which way the, the various pilgrimage routes may have gone. But it struck me that the historical judgment and assessment that we reach is important. And that's a, a professional preoccupation. But what really matters is the people. You know, as we were talking earlier about the, the community of the road and the people who are doing it now and why they're doing it and what they're getting out of it and what experiences they've had and what they can share. In that sense, the historical Camino is almost irrelevant. It's what the people are doing, what people, pilgrims today, are doing and experiencing and uh, their stories. So that was, for me, was the big lesson, was that there, there are multiple rewards for this kind of activity. I wonder if that flows into the way you teach history at all. Sure. And, you know, having thought about it over the last 10 years, yes. And I think most most experienced teachers will think in these terms. We start to recognize more or simplify more and more and concentrate more and more on on very basic goals, you know, goals of self-understanding or goals of how do you understand the way groups interact. And that, for me as an historian, then the pertinent details, the immensely interesting details of the past and of the the lessons of the past and the kinds of sources we use become clearer and clearer that we're doing it for purposes of self-understanding or purposes of that kind of contemporary issues and recognition. And so, yes, the the Caminos brings that home in a very clear way. And as any, I think any kind of recreation, and this is what it is, it's we're doing what people have done, but we're doing it for our own purposes. There's there's almost an immediate sense of relief. Okay, I don't ha- I don't have to carry a pack. I don't have to, to walk these distances. But it's it's accompanied, and almost anybody will tell you this. It's accompanied at the same time by a wistfulness, the Camino blues, if you like, that that routine and those those friends aren't there, sleeping in the same room, you know, breathing the same air at night. That that, that things have changed. And I think everybody takes, you know, those three stages of of pilgrimage that I mentioned earlier on, the crossing the threshold the traveling in community, and the reintegration. The reintegration takes time. And I think especially for these first-time peregrinos and peregrinas, there, there will be lots of thinking about exactly what they did and, and who they met and, and what it means to them. Well, thank you for coming here in the midst of your reintegration. Thank you, Mary. It was really a pleasure to talk about this. Richard Jug is a professor of history and medieval studies at Fordham University. You can read about the students he's led along the Camino de Santiago this year and see pictures and video on their blog, FordhamCamino10.blogspot.com. Cineasts will note that the music playing here is from the Lord of the Rings movie soundtrack, a 
favorite among this year's pilgrims looking to pass the time on their Camino. Coming up, the post 9-11 GI Bill expanded education benefits and was a dream come true for many military veterans, but veterans who filed claims had to quickly wake up to the reality of benefit distribution. Please hold. This is Fordham Conversations. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. And now for a story about the latest incarnation of the GI Bill, the benefits it has provided to student veterans at Fordham University, and how its rocky implementation shows how making a bill law is one thing, but making a law work is another. June 22nd marked the 66th anniversary of the original GI Bill of Rights. In 1944, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed the act, created to offer a slew of benefits to veterans, especially education funding. The GI Bill was resurrected twice, most recently two years ago, with the post-9-11 GI Bill. It was signed into law on June 30, 2008. Mike Balliott knows because he was a jet mechanic in the Navy at the time, and he had been following the debate over the bill by printing out congressional transcripts posted on CNN.com. It was it was like a big a big list of paragraphs, and I was trying to pick out exactly detailed information. I was working a flight schedule. That means I work from from daylight to before like midnight. I remember I print out the script, and whenever I have like five minutes of time, I shine my flashlight through it because I can't see. It's a good thing I have like this blue flashlight. So I was reading it through while I was wait, waiting for aircraft to land, and then when it was passed, I remember it was signed, and it was like I was like I. It, I was, I was happy. I was, I was like the happiest day of my life. A big reason Mike Balliot joined the military was so he could go back to school one day. Now he's a Fordham student, but before he entered the Navy, he was going to Maricopa Community College in Arizona, and then Arizona State. When it got too hard to pay his tuition and work at the same time, he enlisted. That was in 2005. Another GI Bill was in effect back then, and besides being kind of a hassle to apply for and requiring a sign-up fee, the benefit itself was paltry, just over $1,300 a month to cover tuition and living expenses. And if you go to some school like Fordham University, that's not going to cut it. Ricardo de Albuquerque wanted to go to Fordham. He's a rising junior here now. Uh, I've wanted to go to Fordham since as far as I can remember. Albuquerque enlisted in the Army in 2004. He worked on what's called a striker. It's an armored vehicle made for combat and designed to move large groups of infantry soldiers. It looks kind of like a, a big green box with eight wheels. <laughs> and it has hatches on the top where guys would poke their heads out and uh, have security and overwatch. And then whenever they're ready to go, the ramp in the back would drop and everybody would run out and do their thing. I was one of those guys. I was in Iraq doing that. Uh, for a year and a half straight. D'Albuquerque left the Army in late 2007. At that time, the post-9-11 GI Bill was still being debated in Congress and studied by Mike Balliott on an aircraft carrier somewhere. The new bill would cover much higher tuition costs, making private school a likelier option, and it would provide a housing allowance that varied by zip code, so it took the living costs of a city like New York into account. 
The Department of Veterans Affairs, or the VA, is the government's system for distributing veterans' benefits. And there was debate about whether the VA was ready to process benefits claims and dole out so many payments. The new GI Bill was complicated, and the VA didn't have the staff or the automated data entry system to handle what was anticipated to be a flood of applications. As of September 2009, one month after the new bill took effect, about 251,000 veterans submitted benefits claims. And by all indications, the VA wasn't ready for them. In all honesty, it's a new program. And with all new programs, you have to work out, you know, the kinks. Irene Sarno works in Fordham's registration office. She handles the enrollment of all student veterans. Um, basically, the veterans who attend Fordham University are sort of like my babies. <laughs> Sarno sees a key part of the distribution of GI Bill benefits. Her job is certification. She lets the VA know a student veteran has enrolled and how many credits he's taking. Then the VA is supposed to send a corresponding tuition check to Fordham University. There was a maybe like a three-month lab time from date of certification, enrollment certification, to payment. That wasn't so bad. Fordham waived all late fees and could wait for the VA to send tuition money. Problem came when students realized that their housing allowance wasn't coming in from the VA either. Basically, it means that they have no money coming in. So if they're attending school full time and they're not working, there's no income. Ricardo de Albuquerque. And I mean, you can just imagine if you have bills to pay, if you have rent to pay, if you have car payments, if you have any of that, and you're depending on the VA check to come in, if that doesn't come in, you're sitting here and you're calling them every day and you're saying, you know, what's going on over there? Diabakirki says he'd call an 800 number at the VA to find out about his housing check, but he couldn't get through. And there was a time of a few months when the VA just wasn't giving him any information about his benefits claim at all. Was, you didn't get a yes or a no or a hold on, we're doing something, nothing. It was just like silence. Irene Sarno. It was very frustrating because the very same 800 number that veterans call, the school officials called. You know, no one was getting through. They actually got to the point where they left an automated message saying that we're not taking any calls because we're trying to get this thing working. The VA announced that veterans who were counting on the housing stipend could get a $3,000 emergency advance check. D'Albuquerque had enough saved that he didn't need the advance. Still, he says. It was very stressful times. I mean, you're talking about people's rent money. And there were other problems. The VA pays benefits to the school and to the student, one check for tuition and a separate check for housing allowance. But sometimes those payments weren't right. If the VA overpaid the school for tuition, for example, they would deduct money from the student's housing allowance. And overpayment was kind of common at Fordham. The VA would pay for a student's class load, and then the student would drop a class. And a few months later, there'd be several hundred dollars missing from the student's housing allowance. That happened to Mike Balliot. But good news, when he was calling the VA to get it cleared up this May, he noted that he didn't have to wait so long on the phone. Last fall, he would have waited at least 20 minutes, he says, before speaking to VA staff. They've become better. It was very easy. If I called them, I don't even have to wait. Irene Sarno says the VA has amended its policies to avoid deducting from housing allowances or delivering them late. And it has improved. It has improved dramatically. And Sarno says there's talk of someone from the VA holding information sessions with colleges around New York State, although the regional VA office couldn't be reached for comment and no meetings are scheduled yet. All criticism aside, Ricardo de Albuquerque emphasized the generosity of the federal government as what allows him to go to school where he always dreamed of going. The GI Bill obviously allowed me to do that. And for Mike Balliot, 
it may have been complicated getting the GI Bill benefits, but applying for them was a no-brainer. It's too much of a benefit to pass up. If you're given the chance to study and finish your degree, you'd be crazy to pass this on up. You're listening to Fordham Conversations. Up next, Ebony and Ivory on the streets of New York. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. Musicians are not uncommon on the streets of New York, but upright pianos open to anyone are. A public art project has plopped pianos down on sidewalks around town. Kate McGee went to listen to whoever sat down to play. It's a hot, busy Monday morning on East Fordham Road in the Bronx. Buses pass, cars honk, a train whistle blows. In the midst of the hustle and bustle, a child sits, timidly, playing a piano. Sammy, a five-year-old, can't play Mozart or even a C major scale, but his message is simple. I like to make music. Thanks to a new public art project, for the past week, Sammy and others have been able to bring music to the lives of New Yorkers. Play Me, I'm Yours is the artwork of British artist Luke Jerram. With the help of a local nonprofit organization, Sing for Hope, 60 pianos, decorated by local organizations and artists, have been placed throughout the five boroughs for anyone to play. Camille Zamora, the director of Sing for Hope, says the organization wants to expose as many New Yorkers to music as they can. Our programs are the things that go, and so our feeling is, you know, let's bring art into everyday life. Let's make it available to all, in particular to people who might not have access to it otherwise. Now for some, seeing a piano on East Fordham Road was a surprise. Sheila Matovo, a nurse at Bronx Lebanon Hospital, wasn't expecting it. I saw them on the TV, so when I saw it here, I was impressed because they say they're in Manhattan. I thought they would be in Manhattan. But there are other places across the city where a bright, colorful piano isn't as shocking. Take Central Park, for instance. A purple and green piano sits behind the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Here, Julie Lindstrom, a mother from Queens, is playing piano with her toddler in the hot sun. I started lessons when I was six years old. I, you can probably tell I didn't practice very much, <laughs> as much as I should have. But everyone in my family took lessons. The following act is Brooklyn resident Fred Caruso. Playing Thelonious Monk's Well You Needn't, Caruso draws a small crowd. German tourist Uda Kusmal stopped riding her bike to listen, but has one concern. It's great. I thought it's maybe a little bit dangerous when it's raining. But the artist thought of that. Each piano is attached to a cinder block and has a tarp to protect it from rain. Volunteers are also assigned to each piano to make sure it doesn't get damaged. At a busier intersection across town, a group of sixth graders from Columbia Secondary School in Manhattan are tickling the ivories at Lincoln Center. Two girls, Ellie Cohn and Francesca Rubenstein, play the common heart and soul duet. Ellie thinks the pianos are a good addition to an intimidating city like New York. I don't think of it as a place that's like so like just open and just like free. It's kind of like imposing. So I think it's a little bit nice that they're making it more accessible. That idea of bringing a big city together and making it and its people more accessible is exactly what artist Luke Jarm had in mind. 
He said he got the idea at a laundrette where he placed a piano to start conversation, and it worked. Jerem also said the pianos have allowed people to have some fun as well. Lots of people try and play all the pianos in one day, so they travel about trying to play as many pianos in one day on a huge marathon. And that's exactly what could be heard at a playground in Madison Square Park. That's J. Roddy Walston and The Business, a band from Baltimore. They decided to perform at all 29 pianos in Manhattan in one day. At 2.30 that afternoon, they had already played at a dozen pianos. Walston thinks the piano is the basis for all music. Oh, it just makes sense. It's a grid, it's laid out. I mean, like right now, you know, these kids banging around on it. You, you don't have to be special to play a piano, really. You, know, you can just aim your hands at it, throw them down, and it makes a noise. So. However, Walston and his band aren't the only musicians with this idea. Singer Jennifer Lee Snowden is also trying to play all the pianos in Manhattan, but she's allowing herself two weeks to complete the task. As she played in front of New York Public Library, people gathered, sitting at nearby tables to listen, which Snowden says is the beauty of the project. It's also great to get people out of their iPods for a second and get people to turn their heads and to think, oh, you know, what's that, what's happening? The pianos will be available to play across the city for another week. Afterwards, they'll be donated to local hospitals. I'm Kate McGee with Fordham Conversation. You've been listening to a rebroadcast of Fordham Conversations. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us, George Bodarki and Cityscaper next on 90.7 WFUV.